the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us just days away from the 2020 election. Today on the program, we'll share a classic interview in our second hour with James Merritt, author of Character Still Counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. We'll spend the bulk of the day catching up on some of the news that accumulated over the last several days, including this weekend. While many Americans are voting early in the 2020 presidential election with concerns regarding the coronavirus pandemic, the U.S. Postal Service timing and so on, more than 59 million total ballots were cast as of Monday morning. And that suggests a record turnout for this year's race compared to 47.2 million early votes cast in 2016. That's according to data from the United States Election Project. Of course, we here in the Portland area in Oregon, we've received our ballots. We're now uh, pouring over the uh, information regarding the ballot measures and the candidates and so on, not just the presidential election, but down ballot as well. The numbers are stunning, according to Elections Project founder and University of Florida political science professor Michael McDonald. He says in a blog post on the project website that not only are people requesting a record number of ballots, but they're actually sending them back sooner, giving elections workers more time. And let's hope that this all translates into an outcome that is without question. Meanwhile, Vice President Mike Pence will not preside over uh, today's Senate vote to confirm Judge Amy Comey Barrett to the Supreme Court. He's currently on the campaign trail. He's scheduled to make a stop in Minnesota on Monday, despite an outbreak of the coronavirus uh, cases among people in the vice president's inner circle over the weekend. Five cases of the coronavirus were reported among the vice president's close associates on Saturday, and that includes uh, Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short. Uh, the vice president and his wife, Karen, both tested negative for the coronavirus on Saturday. The announcement that Pence will not preside as the Senate president over the confirmation vote comes after Senate Democrats sounded the alarm that his attendance would amount to a health hazard for other members. Not only would your presence in the Senate chamber tomorrow be a clear violation of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention guidelines, it would also be a violation of common decency and courtesy something that hasn't been seen in the Senate for some time, coronavirus notwithstanding. But that's a quote from Senate Democrats, including Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, writing on Monday in a letter to the vice president, adding that his presence is not a risk worth taking. A little closer to home, the cases of COVID-19 in the state of Oregon, according to officials, have reached 765 cases as of this weekend, four deaths over the weekend as well. Uh, Oregon had 649 deaths total, 3,005 hospitalizations, 41,341 cases altogether, with some 800,000 tests. Those are the latest Oregon numbers. Now, you should note that both in Oregon and in Washington, they don't update their websites throughout the weekend. So the numbers uh, that I've just given you are as of Friday. There'll be new numbers today. They'll come out in the interim from our taping this program 
and at broadcasting this afternoon at 4. As of Saturday in Washington, their numbers were 2,296 deaths total, 8,280 hospitalizations, 102,900 cases. Those are the latest Washington numbers. As of uh, the the national numbers, 225,247 deaths across the United States. Well, after the Oregon Health Authority reported a new record high for its daily COVID-19 case counts with 550 new cases on Friday, or as of Friday is more accurate, the Oregon Health Authority reported an additional 765 new cases and four deaths over the weekend. On Saturday, the Oregon Health Authority reported 399 cases and four deaths. And on Sunday, they reported 366 cases and no deaths. Well, starting tomorrow, Portlanders will be able to apply for $500 in housing assistance as part of a new assistance program for Portland residents who are struggling with the health and financial impacts of COVID-19. And auto repossessions are expected to surge in the coming months as COVID-19 hardship programs begin to peter out. Temporary consumer protections expire and unemployment numbers remain very high. Meanwhile, Governor Kate Brown's Healthy Schools Reopening Council is debating the metrics that schools should use to make reopening decisions, and it's doing so behind closed doors. Well, the governor's office says the council is an advisory body to the governor, so they are not public meetings. Uh, that would not uh, that would be true um, under Oregon law, but actually there's nothing stopping the governor from allowing the public to listen as the council considers options and information. She could make the council's meetings public. The governor just isn't. Well, there was a uh, press release about the council's uh, Wednesday meeting, the substance of it, and what it said, and the information that was shared, though, was kept secret. The release pointed out, as of this week, only two counties currently meet Oregon's metrics for in-person instruction for all grades. However, Oregon as a whole is exceeding the statewide 5% positivity rate maximum allowed for schools to move forward to reopening. Well, have kids, um, are there kids in classrooms? Well, the answer is not many. Worried that under the present metrics, many kids will not be able to return to classroom instruction until next school year. Or what ensures students and school staff are adequately protected? Why can't the public listen in on this important debate? These are some of the, uh, uh, the questions that are being addressed. Uh, there was a public records request for any shared presentations that were made at the Wednesday meeting. The Oregonian made a more comprehensive request, um, but the uh, governor's office uh, declined to provide that information. And the debate presumably will continue, and one can only hope that at some point portions of it at least will be made public. Well, for Oregon's legislative Republicans, the 2018 general election was a post-Halloween horror show. Already in the minority that November, the GOP lost seats uh, in both the State House of Representatives and the Senate, giving Democrats the three-fifths supermajorities needed in theory to pass any bill on a party-line vote. Well, the result was so deflating for the party that the then House Republican leaders, they likened his uh, members to not even legislative speed bumps beneath Democrats' treads. But you can't run over what's not there. In 2019 and again in 2020, Republicans walked away from the Capitol three times to slow or halt Democratic policies they agreed with. The Democrats had the votes, but they didn't have the quorum required to take them. Well, those high-profile no-shows bring a unique dynamic to the legislative races that are playing out in Oregon this year. Can Republicans use a narrative of Democratic overreach on topics like climate change and taxation to win both the, uh, rather back the ground they gave way in 2018? 
Or will the toxicity of the presidential race spur another blue wave that can give Democrats the two-thirds majorities needed to render even a Republican walkout impotent? Dirk Vanderhart, writing for uh, OPB, points out, perhaps not surprisingly, leaders in both parties are professing to love their chances. It's a good offensive, says Representative Christine Drazen of uh, Canby, the House Minority Leader. That map is hard for Democrats when you get uh, to, to be so big, it's almost like they're collapsing under their own weight. Not so, say the top Democrats. I think it will be the blue wave year, says Senator Rob Wagner, a Democrat from Lake Oswego, Senate Majority Leader. Democrats currently hold 38 seats in the 60-member House, two members away from a 40-person threshold that would allow the party to conduct virtually any uh, activity they might choose without the Republicans being relevant in any tangible way. Interesting races to watch down ballot. Well, Oregon homeowners struggling with the coronavirus pandemic will still have to pay their property taxes by November 16th. And while counties collect property taxes, the deadline for the payment is set by Oregon law and can only be modified by action from the legislature. Uh, Counties are required to charge interest on properties with delinquent tax amounts. Homeowners have the option to pay their property taxes in three quarterly installments or in two installments, but the first payments are still due November 16th. Homeowners who make their full payment by the 16th receive a 3% discount. I received my uh, property tax notice in the mail on Friday. I didn't even bother to look at it. I I knew it was bad news. I knew the increase would be staggering. I'll look at it, as Scarlett O'Hara would say, and gone with the wind tomorrow. Well, the three Portland area counties began mailing property tax statements to approximately 700,000 people over the weekend. Collections have, um, uh, have... risen by about 5% over the previous tax year in all three Portland area counties, and that's following tax increases every year previous. Well, that increase can be attributed to three factors, an annual 3% increase in assessed value on many properties, which is the percentage that Oregon caps annual increases in the taxable value of property, revenue from property taxes on new construction, and new or increased levies from tax measures approved by voters in individual districts. Property taxes are distributed by counties to all taxing districts within their boundaries. Those include schools, fire protection districts, ports, and more. The truth is, it's in the mail. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, I failed to mention that James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Uh, also, in the second hour, we'll be talking with James Merritt. It's a classic interview. Character still counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. You know, all month long, we have been celebrating Pastors Appreciation Month. We've been providing pastors and ministry leaders a special program every Thursday with amazing speakers and artists. And if you're a pastor or ministry leader, we would love to gift you these programs. All you have to do is sign up at kpdq.com, keyword pastor. The last one is this Thursday, but if you sign up before then, you'll receive all five programs you can enjoy Uh, all of them. Again, go to kpdq.com, keyword pastor. Also, I wanted to mention that Live Love Northwest this Saturday, which is the 31st of October, uh, is distributing essential goods and gift cards in Portland, Vancouver, and Eugene. They're impacting around 3,000 foster children. If you'd like to find out how you can partner with Live Love Northwest to impact the lives of foster children, go to kpdq.com slash truetalk800.com. 
either place, and it's brought to you by PestLock. A couple of good things to remember. Well, according to the Taxpayer Association of Oregon, you may not have known that Metro has passed a $3.6 billion in taxes on businesses, property, and income just in the past two years. Let me repeat that. Metro has passed $3.6 billion in taxes on businesses, property, and income just in the past two years. Well, now comes Metro's wage tax, which is measure 26218, which is the highest tax in the region's history. Now, keep that in mind and in the broader context. Well, the measure creates a permanent new $5.2 billion tax on wages on small businesses. It also taxes churches and nonprofits in the metro area. Metro's wage tax will be hitting churches with a massive tax at a time when they are forced to have their doors shut. Oregon's larger churches have been separated from their congregations, while at the same time straining uh, their resources to help the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable Um, who are being impacted by the virus and massive job loss. Also remember, Metro exempted itself and other state and local governments from paying its own new taxes. Keep that in mind. Um, Measure 26-218, new church and charity tax. I hope you're reading your voter guide and are looking for resources other than the state of Oregon to supplement what you're learning about these measures and the impact it's going to have, for example, not just on business, but also on churches. I read a rather interesting piece in the Oregon Business Report, and I wanted to share it with you. I think I have enough time to do that. Um, it's written by a business owner, John Jackson, in the, um, the Portland area. It was originally featured in the Oregon Transformation Newsletter, and this is what he writes. I am not sure if Mayor Wheeler is sleeping while his apartment is burning. I ask myself, as I look around the disaster of a city that used to be Portland, is the mayor leading under the influence of political correctness? Has he been... In Chinatown lately, uh, locked under the overpass, talk to city planners, the, the Department of Transportation or permit offices, visit local businesses. Over the past few years, probably longer, small businesses have suffered a tremendous blow. The wheels are falling off the bus while it's barrels toward the Willamette. I am talking about pre-COVID and pre-Black Lives Matter. COVID-19 exposed and illuminated some of the cracks in the city's policies that it's it's, uh, concerned small business. As a minority-owned business operator in Portland, I find it extremely painful and punitive to conduct business in the city. I would say that some of the coolness and appeal of life in Portland are the beautiful vistas, the liberating environment for expression, and awesome dining and entertainment opportunities. These are some of the reasons people are moving to Portland. However, Portland is quickly becoming one of the most expensive cities to live in. Currently, housing is indexing at 180% of the national average. As a business owner, I wonder if uh, we're getting our money's worth from the leaders of our city. I believe the tide is turning and popular opinion is waning. There may be an exodus coming unless positive changes happen first. My story is simple and maybe one of uh, many just like it. He goes on to write, In May of 2019, I signed a lease to open a Portland location. I was really looking forward to opening a new style restaurant in such a foodie town. I worked years to develop a concept and style of restaurant that could be a national franchise. Now I finally would be in a top 20 market and a highly competitive food town. After months of searching, I found a promising location in downtown. I was filled with the excitement of finally opening up in Portland. Portland Heroes Cafe had finally made it to the promised land. Get ready stop. It took 16 months to get issued a building permit. The bureaucracy and red tape was overwhelming for a relatively small project. Before I opened, I was paying rent for eight months. 
I have known developers building 20-story buildings in Portland that have navigated the permit process in half the time. This is the rub and my first observation that Mayor Wheeler is asleep at the wheel. Major development developers rather get concierge permit service by paying a large sum of money to the city, which on the surface is not a totally bad thing. When you look deeper, it's a systematic uh, it's it is systemic rather of a core issue. I believe the city of Portland has an arrogant perspective that it's an honor to be allowed to conduct business in the city limits. Small businesses are not a priority and fall through the cracks. It is expensive and time consuming to build in Portland. The same project in Beaverton would have taken one day to get the permit. My architect said he could have gotten an over the counter permit in one day at a fraction of the cost in Beaverton. So be it. I wanted to be in Portland, not Beaverton. So after countless meetings at the permit office and the endless requirements, red tape and fee, uh, fees, I got the final construction permit on July of 2020. We opened in September to more of, of the reality of Portland. During the construction, we had our fair share of problems. Broken windows, homeless people sleeping in the doorways, mentally ill people on the job site and more. However, the reality of the homeless situation did not hit until we opened the doors. As I looked around, it became clear that the city's response to the homeless issue was lacking. COVID-19 policies and the continuous protesting revealed an underlying challenge for downtown businesses. With the dosing of retail, office, schools, parks, and most other social places, what remained was the transient population. The governor and mayor enforced strict policies for social distancing on businesses, but nearly no restrictions on the homeless. I watched as shanty towns and settlements on the sidewalks went up throughout the city. No permits required, no fees, no fines, and lawlessness. These folks live in the park and are on the sidewalks all around my business. In reflecting on the past months and frustration with all of the requirements placed on my business, I asked myself the following. Why was I required to apply for a land use permit, which delayed my permit and construction and cost me about $50,000 in fees and additional rent? The permit was simply to upgrade an existing exhaust fan on the back of the building facing the parking lot. But anyone can set up a campsite or shanty village in the park or sidewalk and live there forever. To the world, Portland is a cool, hip, socially safe and accepting city. That extends directly to our transient and homeless population. As a business owner, it becomes very difficult to maintain the business and when the homeless have more rights than anyone. Portland has encouraged a lifestyle of homelessness with free needles, drugs, food and a handoff, hands-off policy on policing. What businesses need is a mayor and city council to determine a real strategy for managing the homeless, transient, and mentally ill citizens of Portland. Just the other day, in front of my restaurant, a young lady climbed on top of a police car and stripped herself naked. The officers displayed restraint, maybe because of the show, and eventually apprehended the lady. Continually, our customers are exposed to fighting, yelling, and panhandling as they sit outside trying to enjoy a meal. The police are hamstrung because the city of Portland ignores the ever-growing homeless population. On a different note, the city leadership decides to punish large companies that do business with small business. Most recently, Portland decided to show delivery companies like Grubhub that you can't mess with Portland's small businesses. A possibly well-intentioned cap of 10% on delivery fees was imposed on delivery companies. At the same time, the city of Portland extracts city fees of $2 per delivery. This is uh, just another example of how you should be honored to have access to Portland consumers. Finally, businesses have to change increasingly higher prices or charge higher prices because of the cost of labor. Oregon has the second highest minimum wage in the, in the country, only second to Washington, D.C. Someone needs to grab the wheel and point the Portland city bus in the right direction. We need a business-friendly city that supports new businesses. 
There are, will always be homeless and mental illness. Businesses need a homeless strategy that works. Businesses need leadership in a city hall with a new attitude. What can the city of Portland do for business, not what can businesses do for the city? As fees, taxes, and red tape increase, I believe Portland is on track to derail in the near future. There are no easy answers. However, a stronger mayor would help. Maybe the citizens of Portland should petition and get on the ballot a referendum for a strong mayor to take control and lead this city into the future. I found that a very interesting perspective on a business owner in downtown Portland who happens also uh, to be a, uh, a minority business owner struggling to just simply function within the hip, cool bounds of the city of Portland. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A family of seven, including four children, said they were pepper sprayed by violent rioters on Sunday while they were participating in a Jews for Trump rally in New York City. A member of the family said that the unprovoked attack happened while the family was driving down Fifth Avenue with the car windows down and Trump flags displayed. The man who wished to remain anonymous said a car pulled up next to them and unleashed pepper spray into their vehicle. Well, immediately the kids started crying and screaming and uh, the driver jumped out of the car after he was pepper sprayed as well. The encounter was one of many violent confrontations between the rally's participants and the rally's protesters. The Jewish Telegraph Agency reported that the convoy was to take place in several Orthodox Jewish communities ahead of a planned event in Brooklyn's Marine Park. It was organized by Boris Epstein, who is an advisor to the Trump campaign and co-chair of the Jewish Voices for Trump. And I mention it not just to prove the point that one side is evil and the other is not, but this is the level of vitriol that we have come to. A family of seven that includes small children in the back of a car is assaulted uh, in a peaceful demonstration. And this is just unacceptable. We've, we've gotten to the point where we generally believe, uh, apparently, that it's acceptable. If we disagree with someone, we can assume that they are evil to the core and therefore they uh, deserve to be subjected to abuse of any kind. And uh, it's, it's very telling about where we are as a culture during this heightened political season. And I hope that followers of Jesus are rising above that. We may have strong feelings about the election. We may have strong feelings about the candidates whose names will appear on our ballot. But I hope that we are guided by the spirit of Christ in us rather than um, our interest in political outcomes. Because the truth is this election will come and go. This nation will rise and fall. But God is on the throne, and ultimately, we will give account to him for how we conducted ourselves. It's not enough to just have the right views on the subject. We need to conduct ourselves in a way that reflects a right attitude and reflects um, our, our following of Jesus. So I hope we are above that as strongly as we might feel about issues of our day. Well, in other, issue, other news, I should say, hundreds gathered for a Trump caravan rally across Long Island, and an NYPD cop has been suspended for using a loudspeaker to say Trump 2020 while on duty. The um, union has already uh, opposed that suspension. And Jewish leaders penned an open letter in support of President Trump ahead of the election. Four to five more uh, countries could reach a peace deal with Israel, we're now being told. Meanwhile, when the Senate votes this evening to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the United States Supreme Court, it will be just over uh, a week before Election Day that will decide what both parties are portraying as the most important race in American history. Of course, every uh, presidential race is the most 
important in history at that moment. But if Barrett is confirmed to become a member of the highest bench of the country and with Republicans easily having enough votes to confirm her, that seems to be a foregone conclusion. One of the first cases she could hear as a new Supreme Court justice could decide who wins the White House. Well, courts at all level have been deluged with cases uh, relating to balloting in the run-up to Election Day. And there is an official Election Day, although it will be rendered nearly irrelevant. And with the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, one in particular, one case in particular, has garnered national attention. With the possibility of uh, Judge Barrett, a conservative jurist, joining the bench and giving the court a 6-3 conservative majority, Republicans are hopeful that the Supreme Court would rule in favor of ignoring the ballots received after Election Day. Democrats, on the other hand, are decrying Barrett's confirmation as a political act by the president to help him maintain the White House in a race that shows him consistently losing in the polls and as voter suppression, as a voter suppression tactic. Now, if uh, the president is trailing in the polls, it would seem to me that there's no need for concern because he will lose so um, soundly that these numbers or these challenges will be rendered irrelevant. But nonetheless, each is Um, fighting for territory. Meanwhile, Senator Susan Collins says that she's voting against Amy Coney Barrett, her confirmation to be fair and consistent, while Lisa Murkowski announced her support for Amy Coney Barrett during a rare Saturday uh, Senate session. Well, the Senate voted to limit debate on the Barrett Supreme Court nomination, a move toward final vote this evening. And Democrats are trying everything but have failed so far to derail the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation. Well, tumultuous weather is expected across the country this week with historic wildfires burning here in the west, a tropical storm heading toward the Gulf Coast by midweek, and an early season winter storm expected to bring snow and ice from the Rockies into the plains. California has endured its worst wildfire season in history. They're bracing for the most dangerous winds of the year, a forecast that prompted the largest utility to announce plans to cut power Sunday to nearly a million people to guard against its equipment sparking new blazes. The National Weather Service issued winter storm warnings, watches and advisories from the central and south of Rocky Mountains into the plains and even down toward West Texas and Oklahoma. Meanwhile, tropical storm Zeta is uh, gathering strength in the Gulf of Mexico, may reach Category 1 status by Monday before coming ashore somewhere between Florida's western panhandle and Louisiana by midweek. That's according to the National Weather Service. In other developments, Colorado uh, wildfire has forced new evacuations as firefighters are praying to get a lot of snow. And as I mentioned, Tropical Storm Zeta forms and is forecast to become a hurricane and track toward the Gulf Coast. Well, Ice Cube, the rapper, for those of you who don't know, says he's not playing politics by working with the Trump campaign on the platinum plan for black Americans. And Kamala Harris burst out laughing when she asked if she has a socialist perspective. That's one of the tactics that she uses when she doesn't want to answer a question that might be unflattering. She bursts out laughing without actually asking the question. She's charming, charming, she's attractive, and oftentimes gets away with it. Well, Trump continues to hit Biden on his fracking stance in key battleground states. I'm not sure which stance, since he's held both views on the subject. And if Biden wins, he tells the Wall Street Journal uh, supporters that, I should say Wall Street supporters, that he can't wait to increase taxes. So that's something on the horizon that one can expect death taxes and tax increases under a Biden administration. And a Blackstone group will buy simply self-storage in a deal worth $1.2 billion, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. Samsung shares have risen on the news that Chairman Lee Kun-hee's death and NASA has reached a new uh, key milestone with U.S. companies competing to provide 
moon landers. Apparently, there's a lot of trips planned. Well, the New York Times op-ed opinion piece, in other words, questions the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, not just the Supreme Court justice, but the Supreme Court itself. The story opens, we are lawyers who clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy, a lifelong conservative appointed to the Supreme Court by President Ronald Reagan. We urge the Senate not to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett or any nominee until after the presidential election. Rushing through a confirmation will be uh, with an election underway threatens the very legitimacy of the court. Uh, Tim Carney points out that the partisans trying to undermine the legitimacy of our government because the other side is winning. This isn't good. Chuck Schumer says the Senate Democrats are taking over the floor all night to fight the sham process by Senate Republicans. We will not stop fighting. And Senator King from Maine is threatening to pack the court. Uh, Jacob um, Rubashkin says, I think people underrate the extent to which rank and file senators have been procedurally radicalized over the past five years. When King was elected, it was unclear if his he'd caucus with Democrats or Republicans. Now he's openly indicating he would support court expansion. And the debate uh, takeaways, the news uh, clips, the post de facto fact checks and the sound bites to be used in ads over the next 10 days all favor Trump, says the National Review. In this regard, Biden did poorly and will suffer continual bleeding in the swing states. Well, with uh, over 50 million votes already cast, I'm not sure it's going to make as much difference as it might in a conventional election where the debates take place long before people are voting. And from the Wall Street Journal, they point out that the media continue to ignore Biden corruption. The editorial board writes, this is laughable coming from the crowd that spent four years pushing the Russia-Trump collusion narrative from 2016 that was ginned up and promoted by the Hillary Clinton campaign. They spun the claims of the Steele dossier despite no supporting evidence and no on-the-record witness. Yet now they claim that on-the-record statements from a former Hunter Biden associate, along with emails and texts that the Biden campaign hasn't disputed, should be kept from the public. In a New York Post story about the widening scandal, they note this was never a scandal solely about Hunter or Joe's um, brothers, James and Frank. It was and has always been a Joe Biden scandal. And uh, meanwhile, the Daily Wire points out Biden struggles to remember the name of his opponent twice, calling Trump George in a weekend appearance. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the second hour of today's program, we'll hear a classic interview with James Merritt. Character still counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. That phrase uh, really resonates uh, right about now. It really became popular during the Clinton administration, and what a dive we have taken since then. Character still counts. And the sides that were taken by the right and the left on the subject. Anyway, that interview coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Delta uh, has added uh, non-mask wearers to their no-fly list, and the story notes the list is usually reserved for suspected terrorists. So you don't wear a mask on a Delta flight, you are tantamount to a terrorist. And a Trafalgar poll says that Trump is leading in Michigan, Florida, and Arizona. Of course, you don't win an election on those three states alone, but it is interesting. Uh, he's, uh, it's close in all three. Real Clear Politics still has Biden up eight in their average polls. The 53 eight states, uh, state-by-state map, still has Biden with a slight lead in North Carolina, Arizona, and Florida, nearly even in Georgia and up comfortably in Michigan. And when you give Trump Michigan, the map automatically then gives him Florida, Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina, Iowa, Ohio, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. But we'll have to wait and see. 
Well, a school district is calling assignments um, that are calling them late is racist. Now, it's fascinating to me as an African-American woman what now uh, constitutes racism. And apparently calling an assignment late is racist, which implies that black students innately turn their papers in late, which is in and of itself racist. But they also believe blacks are a problem in the classroom more than others, so teachers should no longer consider that in grades. More racism is used to combat so-called racism, and uh, there are folks who don't even know when to be insulted by it. But that's what's going on in school districts around the country. Well, the Senate has voted to advance the Amy Coney Barrett nomination to the Supreme Court, setting up the final vote today. Um, uh, relentless uh, Trump names the judge to replace Barrett's vacant seat in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals as well. Well, the deep state, the General Services Administration, has secretly offered the FBI documents on Trump officials. I'm not sure if that's exactly kosher, but that's what they're doing. And Republicans began to uh, close the early voting gap as voting outpaces 2016. Facebook and Twitter CEOs will voluntarily testify before the Senate on censorship, and the FBI is asking Hunter Biden's ex-business associate, Tony Bobolinsky, for an interview. A Biden quote, this is the most consequential election due to the possibility of four more years of George. I think no one would be more surprised than George Bush to find out that we're going to have four more years of him and his name's not on the ballot. Well, the U.S. sets a coronavirus case record, 85,000-plus the new surge, according to the New York Times, and Italy has ordered bars to close early. They've shut their gyms as COVID cases have ballooned there. Spain also is imposing a national nighttime curfew to curb infections. In national security news, China will impose sanctions on U.S. arms suppliers to Taiwan, and Afghan forces reportedly killed an al-Qaeda's second-in-command. In the annals of social justice, the caliphate, confusion and error, cardinals and bishops come out against the papal comments on same-sex civil unions made in a film aired at the Vatican last week. And a music publicist has been fired by email for attending a Trump rally. A music publicist attended a rally and was fired. Netflix cancellation soared 800 percent after the Cuties debacle. And conservatives are pushing to discredit Facebook, Twitter, and Google, according to um, CNN, just before the election, to discredit them. Well, the Washington Post says we must treat the Hunter Biden leaks as if they were foreign intelligence operation, even if they probably aren't. (laughs) That's what the uh, CNN uh, suggests, according to the Washington Post. And Chelsea Handler tells a black man what he should do. I had to remind 50 Cent. He was black, so he can't vote for Trump. I can't even begin to explain to you how utterly insulting that is that Chelsea Handler, who apparently thought she was being funny, is lecturing 50 Cent on what he is and is not and what he can and cannot do. A California middle schooler was uh, threatened with jail time for missing a 90-minute Zoom class, jail time, and a cat learns a new trick turning on the sink and ends up flooding the owner's home. Okay, a bit of levity in the midst of it all. Well, the suicide rate fell last year after a decade of steady rise. It's not going to hold, however, during this pandemic. Poland bans abortions of babies with genetic disorders, and a nest of murder hornets were annihilated in Washington state to protect honeybees. Just gives me shivers. Well, a Texas 14-year-old won $25,000 for developing potential COVID-19 treatment. And a group of boys find and return a purse stolen three years earlier. 
The recipient says it restores my faith in humanity. Well, Trump uh, well, might want to start with Genesis. Don't have too much faith. I mean, we can do good sometimes. Anyway, Trump grants clemency to a man sentenced to 30 years for nonviolent drug crime. And Sudan becomes the third Arab state in weeks to announce ties to Israel. Well, looking back to this day in history, 1774, the first Continental Congress adjourns in Philadelphia. 1825, the Erie Canal opens in upstate New York, connecting Lake Erie and the Hudson River. 1881, the gunfight at the O.K. Corral takes place in Tombstone, Arizona, as Wyatt Earp, his two brothers, and Doc Holliday confront Ike Clanton's gang. Three members of the Clanton gang are killed. Earp's brothers and Holliday are wounded. I've seen the movie. I know that's true. Also on this day in history, 1949, President Harry S. Truman signs a measure raising the minimum wage from 40 to 75 cents per hour. What a far cry from the 21st century. 1984, baby Faye, a newborn with a severe heart defect, is given the heart of a baboon in an experimental transplant in Loma Linda, California. Baby Faye would live 21 days with the animal heart. 2001, President George W. Bush signs the USA Patriot Act, giving authorities unprecedented ability to search, seize, detain, or eavesdrop in their pursuit of possible terrorists. And finally, on this day in history, the Los Angeles Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox take to the field for what would become the longest World Series game in history. An 18-inning marathon lasts 7 hours and 20 minutes. The Red Sox win 3-2 to on a home run by Max Muncy. My guess is James Blend was watching. I mentioned earlier that uh, five cl- uh, that are close to Vice President Pence have tested positive for coronavirus. The vice president and his wife uh, have tested negative for the virus this weekend. Um, but that follows news Saturday that his chief of staff, Mark Short, tested positive, as well as uh, uh, an outside advisor, Marty Opst, uh, bringing the number of people close to the vice president who have tested positive to five. Pence and second lady, uh, lady Karen Pence tested negative for the virus this weekend. Pence plans to maintain his current campaign schedule. His office said the vice president will be in Kinston, North Carolina, and was on Sunday for a rally. Meanwhile, President Trump announced Friday that Sudan will start to normalize ties with Israel, making it the third Arab state to do so as part of the U.S. broker deals in the run-up to Election Day. Of course, it won't merit much coverage because it might have an impact on the election and the uh, PR arm, the mainstream media of the Democrat Party, won't have that. Well, the deal which would deepen Sudan's engagement with the West follows Trump's conditional agreement this week to remove the North American or rather the North African nation from the list of state sponsors of terrorism if it pays compensation to American victims of terror attacks. It also delivers a foreign policy achievement for Trump just days before the U.S. election and boosts his embattled ally, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Recently, the United States brokered diplomatic pacts between Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain. Jordan recognized Israel in the 90s. Trump invited reporters into the Oval Office while he was on the phone with leaders of Israel and Sudan. Uh, The president said Sudan had demonstrated a commitment to battling terrorism. This is one of the great days in the history of Sudan, Trump said, adding that Israel and Sudan have been in a state of war for decades. We're going to take a break here at the top of the hour for news and traffic. I want to remind you, coming up in the second hour of today's program, our classic interview with James Merritt, author of Character Still Counts. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Up later this hour, we'll talk with James Merritt. He's the author of Character Still Counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. That's coming up later this hour on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, drug manufacturer AstraZeneca said uh, its virus vaccine can trigger an immune response among adults, including among young and old. AstraZeneca, which is developing the possible vaccine along with the University of Oxford, said adverse responses to the vaccine among the elderly were found to be lower. It's encouraging to see uh, immunogenicity responses were similar between older and younger adults and that reactogenicity were lower in older adults as well, where the COVID-19 disease severely, uh, severity is higher. An AstraZeneca spokesperson said the results further build the body of evidence for the safety and immunogenicity of AZD-1222, the spokesman said, referring to the technical name of the vaccine. Well, the spokesman from Oxford University said the results mark a key milestone in the development of a vaccine while reassuring that the vaccine is safe for use and induces strong immune responses in both parts of the immune system in an adult, uh, all adult groups. Well, data from the analysis were submitted to a peer-reviewed journal. Um, AstraZeneca said, although it's not clear when the study could be published. So they're moving in the right direction to develop a vaccine for the general public. Well, we are all, of course, in the midst of uh, voting. And my understanding is uh, we are at this point, it looks like we're going to outpace 2016 in terms of voter turnout. But one uh, wonders how NASA allows astronauts to vote in space. Well, they have a motto, vote while you float for astronauts. And with the U.S. election just, well, a week or two away, NASA has explained how the astronauts do, in fact, vote in space. Well, the space agency has the motto I mentioned for their astronauts and say that like other forms of absentee voting, voting from mail or rather from space starts with the federal postcard application. Um, It's the same form military members and their families fill out while serving outside of the United States. By completing it ahead of their launch, space station crew members signal their intent to participate in an election from space. Well, NASA notes that because astronauts move to Houston for their training, most opt to vote as Texas residents. Of course, NASA's astronauts uh, come from all over, so those wishing to vote as residents of their home states can do that by working um, with their counties to make special arrangements to vote from space. One of the uh, FCPA is uh, is approved. That's the initial uh, postcard. The county clerk who manages the elections in the astronaut's home county sends a test ballot to a team of NASA's at NASA's John, uh, Johnson Space Center, according to NASA. A space station test computer is then used to test whether it can be filled out and sent back to the county clerk. And they follow the process just like the rest of us. Now, let's hope it's as reliable or at least the rest of the voting that takes place around the country is as reliable as the astronauts voting from space to be cast and counted in a timely manner. Well, you know, in the real world, a couple of seconds aren't that much, but in track and field, they're the difference between first and last place. When Franklin Pierce University's C.C. Telfer spreaded through the finish line well ahead of the women's field in 2019 in the Division II National Championships, he insisted he didn't have a biological advantage, despite his biology. His competition, girls who trained their whole careers for that moment, disagreed. Well, thanks to a hugely controversial transgender athletic policy, they all missed out at that chance for collegiate glory. And this month, more than a year later, justice may finally be won. Robert Johnson, who's one of the commentators who saw that race in Texas, 
was, uh, like a lot of Americans, well, fairly horrified. Prior to joining the women's team this season, Telfer was a mediocre Division II athlete who never came close to making it to the Nationals in the men's category. In 2016 and 2017, Telfer ranked 200th and 390th, respectively, among the Division II men in the 400 hurdles. Well, the fact that Telfer... Uh, can change his gender and immediately become a national champion is proof positive as to why women's sports need protection. Well, athletes across the spectrum agreed. So did parents and public policy groups, one of whom, Concerned Women for America, filed a formal complaint with the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights. Well, these politically correct policies, President Penny Nance argued, are turning Title IX sports on its head. If something isn't done and quickly, women's sports will be endangered to the point of extinction. The Trump administration, after a lengthy probe, agreed. After a long conversation with agency officials, Franklin Pierce decided reluctantly to drop their unfair guidelines. Franklin Pierce University regrets that we must remove our previously published transgender participation and inclusion policy. We remain committed to an inclusive environment for all of our students while also complying with federal law. Franklin Pierce University and the Department of Athletics will continue to support all students and student-athletes. Of course, one of the major concerns this summer was that what kind of impact the U.S. Supreme Court redefinition of sex would have on girls' sports. The Trump administration didn't waste any time setting that record straight, filing a statement of interest in the Selena Soul case in Connecticut, and then threatening the federal funding of any school that jeopardized the level playing field, as the Office of Civil Rights pointed out in its letter last Friday. Even if Bostock applied to Title IX, a question the Supreme Court expressly declined to address, its reasoning would only confirm that Title IX does not permit a biologically male student to compete against females on a sex-segregated team or in a sex-segregated league. Well, unlike the Bostock ruling, the letter continued, which concluded sex is not relevant to employment decisions, sex is relevant to school sports. Under the resolution, Franklin Pierce says, until the end of the month to prove that the policy has been changed. In the meantime, CWA says this ought to be a warning shot to the NC2A and every college and university in America to back off policies that discriminate against female student athletes and restore equity in women's sports. We We are grateful to the Trump administration for righting this wrong and hope more Americans wake up and realize that these common sense protections are what next month's election is all about. Again, quoting from Concerned Women for America. Well, several Roman Catholic prelates uh, either denounced or attempted to clarify comments that Pope Francis made last week that endorsed civil union laws for same-sex couples. Cardinal Raymond Burke, an American who has uh, before described homosexual relationships as profoundly disordered and harmful, said in a statement, such declarations referring to the Pope's statement of civil, on civil unions generate great bewilderment and cause confusion and error among Catholics faithful, insomuch as they are contrary to the teaching of sacred scripture and sacred tradition, end quote. He went on to say they cause wonderment and error regarding the church's teaching among people of goodwill who sincerely wish to know what the Catholic Church teaches. He further described the papal comments, they impose upon pastors of souls the duty of conscience to make fitting and necessary clarifications. The context and the occasion of such declarations make them devoid of any magisterial weight. They are rightly interpreted as simple private opinions of a person who made them. Now, these declarations do not bind in any manner the consciences of the faithful who are rather obliged to adhere with religious submission to what sacred scripture and sacred tradition and the ordinary magisterium of the church teach, end quote. 
Well, Burke sits on the Vatican's highest court and formerly served as the Archbishop of St. Louis, Missouri, cited both the Bible and the Catechism of the Catholic Church to lay out his case that God ordained the differences between the sexes for a reason and that heterosexual, rather homosexual relationships are contrary to the natural law, closed to the gift of life and void of a true effective and sexual complementarianism. As predicted, there would be some shakeup in the Catholic Church following those statements last week. Well, the coronavirus pandemic has continued to an alarming national mental health crisis. According to the American Psychological Association, well, the association says in their annual report, Stress in America, uh, highlighted the results of a survey that the organization conducted. The results, which showed the coronavirus pandemic is having an outsized effect on Americans' mental health, have caused the APA to sound the alarm. Our 2020 survey is different, the report says. It reveals that Americans have been profoundly affected by COVID-19 pandemic and that the external factors Americans have listed in previous years as significant sources of stress rather remain present and problematic. The unusual combination of these factors and the persistent drumbeat of a crisis that shows no sign of abating that is leading at the APA to sound the alarm. We are facing a national mental health crisis that could yield serious health and social consequences for years to come. The coronavirus hasn't just affected those who have lost family and friends from the virus, the report said. Work, education, health care, and the economy have all been impacted, affecting all Americans. We need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, James Merritt, Character Still Counts. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, a recent Gallup poll found that when Americans consider the trajectory of the nation, 72% conclude that the state of moral values in the U.S. is getting worse. Well, pastor and author James Merritt sadly agrees. In Character Still Counts, It's Time to Restore Our Lasting Values, he takes a look at the country's shift from placing importance on an individual's character to placing importance on their skill and material success, making the case that a return to valuing character will truly restore our country's moral trajectory. He writes, America is changing faster than our minds can process. Uh, There's a silent shift of the tectonic plates of character, the bedrock of our society. Well, the solution, each individual doing the hard work of building their own good character, brick by brick, thought by thought, action by action, valuing the attributes modeled by the greatest man of character who ever lived, Jesus. Well, in Character Still Counts, um, Mr. Merritt shows readers how to instill and develop 12 character traits that are essential to godly living. He draws inspiration from modern-day character heroes as well as biblical role models and urges readers to make the conscious decision to invest in what matters most in this life— their character rather than their reputation. Well, Dr. James Merritt is a pastor, author, past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and host of the Touching Lives television program seen nationwide and in 122 countries. As a national voice of faith and leadership, he's been interviewed by Time Magazine, um, Fox News, MSNBC, 60 Minutes, and many others. He resides with his family outside Atlanta, Georgia. But today we have him by phone to talk about his latest book, Character Still Counts. It is time for to restore our lasting values. Dr. Merritt, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Georgine, what an honor to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, this is a very uh, timely season to release a book by this title because we are in the process of electing our leaders that will serve for two to four, maybe even six years. And we're contemplating what matters most in casting an informed ballot. But your book really goes beyond picking political leaders. It goes much deeper than that. Uh, It's easy to look at the character of others who are in positions of leadership, and it's right to do so. But you encourage your readers to consider their their own character and the value of investing in one's own uh, inner life. Well, that's exactly right. And Georgine, I would even say that I think even more important than leadership in, for example, the political arena, I think leadership begins at home. I think we've got to get back where moms and dads are teaching their, their kids both by modeling and mentoring why character is so important and why character is such a big deal. We've somehow, for some reason, uh, we have bought into this idea that, and it goes all the way back, I think, to uh, a, um, uh, a, a um, uh, an advertisement that was done many, many years ago by a tennis player named Andre Agassi. And there was a, there was a camera uh, 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 business that used to be in business, out of business now, but they did this brilliant ad campaign, and it was called Image is Everything. And, Georgine, I'm afraid we have bought into that. And so now, today, it's the age of the soundbite. Uh, it's the age of, uh, you know, uh, the making sure that your selfie looks perfect. Uh, it's the age of making sure that uh, it really doesn't matter what you're on the inside. What matters is what you are on the outside, and I think it's been to our detriment. Oh, absolutely. And it seems like technology has made it easier for us to take on a persona that does not reflect anything about our actual life and character and and history and all of that. So we are at a a great disadvantage if we buy that message. Well, there's no question about it. And, and, And the whole theme of my book is this. I would just invite your listeners to just fast forward, no matter what age they may be, but fast forward to that time in your life when you draw your last breath and your life is over, and just Mm -hmm. ask yourself a simple question. What really will matter at the end of your life? Your reputation, which is what other people thought about you, or your character, which is what you and God knew were true about you? Hmm. It's a very sobering question. Yeah, and and it's no question about it. And again, I think, again, we have really, um, you know, we have really... um, uh, to our detriment, just neglected it. We're, we're seeing it, and, and you know, we're reaping what we sown. Uh, we're seeing it. I'll, I'll give you a good example. When I was growing up, I grew up as a as a as a kid in a little country town uh, in, in, outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And you know, there was a day and age when you know, even if somebody cut you off in traffic, you might blow your horn. That'd be the worst of it. Today, you may get your head blown off. Uh, we didn't know what road rage, rage was back in the day. You kind of let things pass. Mm-hmm. But even even from something as small as that to uh, whether you look at the church, you look at government, or you look at Wall Street, it's almost a daily occurrence now. Okay, who, what's the next domino to fall? Who is the next pastor to show that he really wasn't the real deal? Uh, who is the next politician that's going to get uh, exposed? Who is the next financial wizard that proves, uh, unfortunately, that his financial house was a house of cards? And we see it daily, and it's all because of our deficit of character. Now, in the in your book, character still counts, and I hope that's that's true for all of our listeners. We believe that character still counts. You examine twelve values that are integral to a person's character, and look at how they can uh, be instilled in an individual's life and uh, developed. What are these uh, these character uh, qualities that we ought to pursue? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. And as I go through these slowly, I would again ask your listeners just to, just to imagine a situation. Imagine that you are the CEO of a large company, and you're about to hire someone that maybe you want to be your successor one day. And I come to you, and I not even maybe even knowing that much about your business, but I say to you, hey, I want to recommend uh, a lady to you uh, to take over your company one day. I know you're looking for a successor. I want to recommend a lady, and, and I, I don't know a lot about her technical skills, but let me tell you about this lady. And I tell you that she is a person of integrity, honesty, humility, loyalty, respect, authenticity, generosity, courage, perseverance, self-control, forgiveness, and faithfulness. Regardless of what her degree may be, regardless of where her education may come from, or even how much experience that she has, if you're a person of character and you understand the importance of character and leadership, you would say, you know, I've heard all I need to know. I've got to interview this lady, and even if she's not the right fit, I've got to find a place for her because you don't find people like that very mm. often. Yeah, yeah. You write that some of the chapters were harder uh, for you to, to write than others. Why was that the case, and which were some of the, uh, the more difficult? Well, that's a great question, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, it, it takes, let's be honest, it takes a certain amount of two things in the book that I list to write this book, and one is humility and the other is honesty. First of all, I've got to be humble enough to admit, and I am, look, I'm still working on my character. Uh, I found myself coming up short in some of these chapters that I wrote to my chagrin and to my regret, and a classic case uh, is self-control. Um, uh, I'm not a, I'm a, I'm a very high-driven, highly-driven, intense person. Uh, patience is not my virtue. Um, I, uh, for years, I didn't have a volcanic temper, but I had a temper. And, uh, you know, it came out sometimes in my fathering. I would be too strict with my own children, which I've uh, admitted to, uh, to them and asked forgiveness for. And some of these character traits, frankly, when I was writing the chapter, I'd have to put the pen down and, and simply tell the Lord, you know, Lord, you know that I'm not really qualified to write this. I need to take my own advice. And it was just difficult. And that was, that was the, probably the main chapter for me uh, was that whole area of self-control. And you know, I call it caging the lion. And uh, it's just always been a battle for me, probably will be an ongoing battle for me. Yeah, yeah. The first two values that you address in, uh, in your book, Character Still Counts, are integrity and honesty. First, let's talk about the difference between the two and uh, which you feel is more costly. Yeah, excellent question, and it really goes to the heart of the book. First of all, um, people sometimes confuse those two things, and they really are different, and so I'll make it very easy and simple. Uh, You can have uh, integrity. You can have honesty without integrity. But you cannot have integrity without honesty. And I'll give you this illustration. If, uh, if, I walk, if, you're, if you're a bank teller and I walk into your bank and I pass a note across to you and it says, give me your money or I will kill you, I may be very honest with you. I may be telling the truth. I may be, you, your life may be on the line. But what I'm doing has no integrity. Hmm. So you can be honest without being a person of integrity. On the other hand, integrity goes right to the heart, not just of honesty, but it really goes to the heart of all these virtues. And when I was asked, uh, Georgine, to write this book, uh, I told my publisher, I said, okay, I've got two demands that are non-negotiable. 
I, I, I want to determine what the very first chapter is, and I want to determine what the second chapter is. I want to book in the, the, these chapters, and they said, fine. So integrity, it's not coincidental that I put integrity first, because I believe integrity is the foundation of all of the other character traits. I, I told my three sons growing up repeatedly, Boys, if you don't have integrity in your life, no matter what else is true about you, it doesn't matter how far you go in life, how high the corporate ladder you climb, how much money you make, how much stuff you accumulate, if at the end of your life you didn't have integrity, you really didn't amount to much of anything. And I define integrity as always doing the right thing at the right time in the right place, and this is the key phrase, regardless of the cost or the consequences. And that's why I think, Georgine, that by far and away, the most costly of these traits uh, is integrity. Because if integrity goes out the window, you can rest assured it's like the first domino falling. Yeah, yeah. If integrity goes out the window, most of the rest of these will never, ever materialize in your life. We're going to take a quick break, but I'll continue my conversation with Dr. James Merritt. His book is titled Character Still Counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show back in a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Dr. James Merritt, he is the author of Character Still Counts. It is time to restore our lasting values. And it's not just about their character, it's about our own. And in the book, he offers uh, 12 character traits that we all uh, should aspire to. In the book, you write that we can learn uh, something about respect from David. Now, there are some things we might not want to learn from him, but respect is one of them that you highlight. What can we learn about respect from David? You know, uh, this is a, that was actually you know, one of my favorite chapters uh, because it's a story about how David had an adversary by the name of Saul. Uh, David was the innocent party. Saul was the guilty party. David was, was literally being hunted down like a dog. And even though he was the king's best friend, he was being treated as his worst enemy. And he had an opportunity to do what anybody would have done probably in his situation, Georgine, and would have never blamed him for it. He had a chance to take his enemy out, mm -hmm. but he didn't. Instead of, instead of justice, he gave him mercy. Why? Because he was still the king. And David had learned that there's a very valuable principle in Scripture, and that is that you do respect authority. You may not respect the person sitting in the seat of authority, but you do respect the position of authority. And the reason why the book is so important, one thing I think, I don't think anybody can disagree with this, Georgine, there has been a tremendous loss of just old-fashioned courtesy and civility in this country. Yes. You, can, you can't even have a, listen, you can't even have a political discussion Without, in two minutes in, people get hot under the collar, their veins bulge out, they start calling names. I mean, it, 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 it's just toxic. And, and I, I even tell our church, I have a motto about politics, I never make the political personal, never. We can disagree, you can be a Democrat, a Republican, liberal, conservative, libertarian, whatever. And we may have vociferous disagreements and debates about any number of issues. But at the end of the day, I'm not your enemy. And you're not my enemy. And, and you'll get a lot further in discussions when you do it with civility and courtesy than you do with hostility and name-calling. Mm. Again, one of those character tra uh, traits, respect. And what does it mean to live an authentic life? They, there are references in our culture quite often to authenticity, but I'm not sure we know what it means to live an authentic life. You know, um, the reason I love that chapter, I think that chapter really would appeal to young people. 
the, the number one trait that millennials, according to every survivor, are looking for today is authenticity. And that simply means that you're always true to you regardless of where you are or whom you're with. You know, uh, one of my favorite uh, comedians was an old comedian, some will remember named Groucho Marx. And he, had, he famously said one time, I wouldn't join a club that would have me as a member. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the point being that, you know, he wasn't always real in, 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 in his persona. And I think people really appreciate that whether you're with the president of the United States or you're with the janitor on the bottom floor of a company, you treat people exactly the same, and you are always the same. You don't put on airs. You don't pretend to be something that you're not. You know, the, op- the opposite of authenticity is hypocrisy. And, and the one thing that even Jesus hated more than anything else was hypocrisy. And, and people today, I have found that particularly a younger generation, they are looking for someone that's just the real deal. In fact, I don't think that anyone, uh, anyone, Georgine, can be paid a higher compliment than to be told, you know what, Georgine, you know what I've learned about you? You're the real deal. You're, you're, you're the same thing in private that you are in public. You're not two different people. You don't put on a mask. You're not trying to win an Academy Award when you go out in public. You are who you are all the time, and I think it's a tremendously great, valuable uh, character trait that too often is missing in our society. Another of the character traits that you write about uh, in your book, Character Still Counts, is generosity. And you write about three things that you and your wife do in order to cultivate generosity, which doesn't come naturally to us. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and I, let me just say this to, to, to those that are listening today. Generosity is, is something that's hard to cultivate. We're, you know, if you think about it, uh, we are absolutely convinced that uh, getting is more important than giving. And, and that, uh, you know, that, that, that the person that dies with the most stuff wins. And so uh, you know, what I share, uh, you know, in this book is, you know, we've got to change three things. We've got to change the way we look at money. Uh, we, we've got to see that money is not an, an end in itself. It's a means to an end. And the reason why God blesses us is not so that we can raise our standard of living, but so we can raise our standard of giving. And then we want to be proactive in where we leave money and be very careful in how we leave it. Money is a legacy. We're all going to leave behind some legacy. And so uh, Teresa and I, even now, we're kind of being very strategic about making sure that after we're gone, whatever God has blessed us with continues to do work for him after we're gone. And then finally, we've got to refuse to love money. You know, the Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil because it's not. But the love of money is the root of all evil. And living in the most materialistic culture we've ever lived in and the most affluent, there is only one antidote for the disease of what some people call affluenza, and there's only one cure for the disease of greed, and that is being generous with what you have. Mm. You write about the importance of self-control, which is something that I think we would all benefit by if we would make that a pursuit in life as we attempt to develop character. Talk a bit about self-control, both for the individual and certainly for those who are in positions of influence and leadership. Well, at the end of the day, uh, I think the most important battle you have to win on a daily basis is within yourself. Let, let me give you an example. Um, if, and let's say I'm talking to a believer who's listening tonight, and, and you know you need to be reading your Bible every day, but you don't. Because instead of getting up 15 minutes early, you hit the snooze button. You just lost the battle with yourself. Or to give you another example, and, and, and to show you how these are intertwined, so you're in a store, and you see something you want, 
Maybe it's a blouse. Maybe it's a shirt. Maybe it's a pair of shoes. You don't need them. You've already got more blouses or shirts or shoes than you already wear. But you give in and you buy it anyway. You just lost the battle with yourself. And I think that is the most important battle we have to win every single day because if you lose the battle with yourself, you probably won't win many other battles. But if you win the battle of self, you're set up for victory in every area of your life from day to day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What public figures would you say demonstrate high moral character, people we may uh, be familiar with or, or think we know at least? Well, I'll give you just one example, uh, and it's from the world of sports because I happen to know him. But Coach uh, Mark Richt uh, is uh, what used to be the coach, head football coach at Georgia University of Georgia and also at Miami. Um, I'm, I've known Coach Rick for 20 years. Um, he was beloved by his players. He was beloved by the fans because he, he lived out his faith. Uh, I saw him both in private and in public on many occasions, and he literally was a man that was the same whether he was at home or whether he was on the football field. And and I will say this. I think too often we're so critical. I believe there are a lot of people that are in public service, that are in government, that are on Wall Street, even in Hollywood. Yeah, I think there are a, a good number of people, and we neglect them because we tend to look for the bad apples. But I think, you know, that, that would be the first thing that comes to my mind would be Mark Rick because he is, he is a person that really does, uh, you know, value all of these. And I can tell you another one, he's not living anymore, but nobody I've ever met in my life engendered all of these values like Billy Graham. Yeah. Uh, he was the, uh, you know, Billy Graham is one of the three greatest men that I've ever known, ever met in my life. Had the opportunity to be with him on several occasions. I, went his, I was in his home, actually, just a few years ago. I spent an hour with him. And, and Billy Graham personifies everything that you would want for your son or daughter to be. Yeah, yeah. Now, you um, also uh, focus on the ultimate character in the world and what we can learn from him about exemplifying the values that you discuss in your book. And, of course, that's Jesus himself. Yes. I, you know, that was I told you, as I said, that was the main chapter that I insisted on, and I call this the main character, and here's why. When you read the book, you need to go ahead and understand, like I have, look, we're not all going to live out every bit of these characters every single day. We're going to fail. We're going to fall short, and that's all right. We're human, and God understands that, but it is a standard we should ascribe to. Yes. And that's true of every single person who's ever lived or ever will live except one. And the thing that kept coming back to me as I wrote all these chapters, George Ann, was, you know, there's one guy, there's one person out of the some 30 billion people that anthropologists say have lived on this planet since time has been measured. Of the 30 billion, there's been one single person, only one, that perfectly personified all of these character traits 24-7 every day of his life. And, and that's Jesus. Jesus. Well, and I wish we had uh, would, wish yeah. we had more time, uh, but we don't. I want to thank you for joining us again. The title of the book: Character Still Counts. Doctor Merritt, thank you so much for being with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind pastors and ministry leaders, as you know, all month long, we've been celebrating Pastors Appreciation Month by providing uh, pastors and ministry leaders with a special program each Thursday with amazing speakers and artists. Well, if you happen to fall into either of those categories, pastor or ministry leader, we'd like to gift you these programs. All you need to do is go to kpdq.com. The keyword is pastor. The last one is this Thursday, but if you sign up before then, you'll receive all five programs. You can enjoy and appreciate not only the uh, 
teaching, but also the uh, music performances. Again, kpdq.com, keyword is pastor. A reporter for a Christian Post um, made an interesting uh, observation. Cancel culture, transgender ideology, Antifa protests, Internet surveillance is an anti-religious totalitarian regime like the former Soviet Union coming soon to the United States. And I think some of us would just say, oh, that's just an exaggeration. That cannot be true. But he was interviewing Rod Dreyer. Now, according to uh, Dreyer, who's best-selling author of The Benedict Option and senior editor at the, Amor- the American Conservative, he says the answer is yes, and churches must be prepared for it. And we're talking about a soft totalitarianism. Well, he documents the evidence for what he labels soft totalitarianism and how U.S. Christians should respond in his soon-to-be-released book, Live Not by Lies, A Manual for Christian Dissidents, because that title may at some point in the not-too-distant future apply to those who faithfully follow Christ and the teachings of Scripture. Well, he looks at cancel culture, uh, culture rather, the advance of socially liberal ideas on mainstream society and the intrusion of information technology into private lives as evidence of this possible future. Back in the Soviet era, he writes, totalitarianism demanded love for the party and compliance with the party's demands was enforced by the state. That's uh, from his book's introduction. Again, live not by lies, a manual for Christian dissidents. Today's totalitarianism demands allegiance to a set of progressive beliefs, many of which are incapable with logic and certainty uh, with Christianity. Well, the title is derived from a quote from uh, famed Russian anti-communist intellectual Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who uttered the phrase not long before being exiled from the Soviet Union. Uh, Dreher explains to the Christian Post that the inspiration came after he spoke to a friend's mother who had lived in Soviet-era Czechoslovakia. And if you want to have an interesting conversation, speak with someone who's in this country from the former Soviet Union or the Soviet bloc or from Romania um, who utter profound warnings to the church about what's coming. In any event, he says he uh, came up with the idea after this conversation. The woman who had been imprisoned for her dissident political views claimed that the social and political changes in the U.S. mirrored those of the rise of communism in Eastern Europe. Uh, That struck me, he says, as uh, really alarming. I don't know if I believed it, but once I started talking to other people here in the United States and in Europe who lived uh, through all of this, it became uh, clearer that that uh, may in fact be the case. So it's a rather interesting uh, book that I would recommend um, that is not yet released, but is expected to be released at some point in the not too distant future. Well, he points to Alexander Solzhenitsyn. One of the things that he most uh, is most known for is saying that people in the West, uh, they make a big mistake if they think it can't happen here because it can. Well, the Christian Post talked to Dreher uh, about the upcoming book uh, and he was asked, how would you say the book compares and contrasts with others uh, like the Benedict Option? And he points out that uh, in the original book, he talks about uh, very generally about de-Christianization in the West and how Christians should respond to it on a daily basis. Well, in the new book, he um, uh, does focus much more intensely on one aspect of that, which is the arising of systematic oppression and marginalization and oppression of traditional Christian believers. Uh, This is much more focused. It's more specific. It identifies much more particularly the problem and gives much more concrete ways of dealing with it. But it's uh, all part of the same crisis. There are people who don't think all uh, at all that we're moving toward a sort of totalitarianism, which is a big word. And when you consider at its 
uh, complete fulfillment and its maturity, that's not what he's talking about. Again, he's referring to it as a soft totalitarianism because they think of it as the sort of thing that uh, Christians believe are just wrong and weird. But I didn't write a book for them. He wrote the book for Christians. Um, he says it's hard to say uh, the timing of all of, uh, of all of this and how it's likely to happen. But I think there is evidence that we could uh, point to that certainly suggests this is a possibility. It's a book I'm looking forward um, to reading once it's finally out. But I, I do agree with his um, with his premise, uh, this sort of um, soft totalitarianism and how to how to resist it. Well, he does say that it's hard to pinpoint particular groups, but he'll uh, he gives an example of just um, uh, one example. Uh, he became a listener to Joe Rogan. It's a podcast, and he was impressed by uh, not because he, by him, not because he was a conservative. Um, uh, he seems to be a, a left libertarian um, if he had to pin him down, but also got a lot of common sense, and he's been. Uh, very strong about the way the transgender movement, for example, is exploiting teenage girls and their anxieties. Uh, he was listening to that newest podcast in which he talks about how difficult it is to have a common sense conversation with anybody these days because everybody is so rampant and so ideological. Uh, someone like this guy, uh, who is not considered conservative on the right, but is a moderate libertarian, I suppose is the way uh, to describe it, to recognize that is an example of how it's recognized outside of conservative Christian circles. In any event, it's a book I'm looking forward to uh, uh, to reading once it is out, and I wanted to introduce the, the phrase soft totalitarianism in which certain ideas, certain uh, views are simply not tolerated, expressed in any context, and I, I would agree with his assessment that we seem to be moving in a direction where that may in fact be what the Christian community in this country is facing and how to uh, how to address that. How to Live Under That is the subject of his book. Well, I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. We are approaching the uh, election. I hope you're spending time just praying for the outcome, praying for your neighbors, that we can return to an environment where we can live peaceably with one another, even if we have strong disagreements and especially pray for those with whom you most strongly disagree. Who knows what God might do in our country if we're praying. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.